Congratulations for putting up with me all week. And uh, man, I tell you, I've had a good week and a good time. And uh, the food was good. I've enjoyed the fellowship. And I'm thankful that you've been here each night. Pastor, you got the gold stars? You got the, no? Ah, Brandon. Brandon's the one to blame, all right? So uh, come Sunday, you can get your gold star on Sunday. Brother Brandon will have it for you. Anyways, let's go to the Gospel of Luke tonight. Let's go to chapter number 15. Gospel of Luke, chapter number 15. As you're turning there, uh, some have asked about uh, how they can follow us or pray for us. Uh, our website is probably the best way to do that. Uh, it is ericpaulgetch.com. And so uh, it is just my name, literally spelled out, uh, .com. And, um, uh, and so you can, you can see us there, and uh, uh, there's some messages online there as well, and uh, would love to have you follow us along. From here, uh, I actually fly to uh, Medford, Oregon, which is uh, South Oregon and uh, Southwest Oregon, and uh, I'm going to be at a church anniversary revival meeting, a brand new church. It's been around one year, started last year in the midst of all of what was going on last year, and so I'm excited to be up there. Uh, he's a friend of mine from college and uh, started that church in Grant Pass, Oregon, and so that's where I'll be next week, and then I will fly back. My wife will pick me up, and we will head to a uh, meeting in Dallas. Davenport, Iowa. And so we're staying busy. We've got a couple more meetings here in 2021. 20, uh, and uh, the Lord has blessed us. And uh, we're just thankful that uh, you've been here and that you've taken part in the services this week. And so we're in Luke chapter number 15 tonight. And we're going to read just verses 1 through 3 to get started here. It says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying... So Jesus is hosting a dinner party, and four groups of people have decided to show up. The first two groups are the uh, publicans and sinners. Now, the, the publicans were uh, the, the tax collectors of their day, uh, but to equate them to like the IRS just doesn't quite do it uh, justice. They were hated. They were absolutely despised by their countrymen because these were Jewish people who had been sold out. They had sold out to the Roman government. They were taxing the Jewish people, the Roman tax, the Jewish tax, and they were always adding other taxes on as well to kind of line their pockets. And so they were using the oppressor to then oppress their own people. And so they were despised. They were rejected by their countrymen. Uh, no one fellowshiped with the publicans. And then when, whenever you see the word and the sinners, right, it's not just speaking to like a general audience of sinners, but it's speaking that they, these people were notorious for their sin. They were known by their sin. I mean, these are the, the these are the known criminals. These are the known thieves. These are the known wicked people of their day. And yet, the Bible says that they have drawn near unto Jesus to hear him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a good thing. These sinners and these publicans are coming to Jesus because their lives have been changed by Jesus. In other words, that may be how the culture viewed them of their day, but that is not how Jesus viewed them any longer. They were saints. They were children of God. And they've come to this dinner party to hear from Jesus. 
Now, the other two groups that are there are the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the religious elites of their day. Uh, these men would have had the entire Old Testament memorized by the time they were 15. Uh, the five, first five books of the Bible, the law and the prophets, all of it would have been committed to memory word perfectly because they didn't have spiral-binded Bibles like we have today, right? They had it all down perfectly. These guys knew their Bible, and truly the devotion to the Word of God is something that, man, I admire. I admire how well they knew their text, how well they were devoted to keeping the law. I mean, these people were so devoted to keeping the law that they made up other laws to keep them from breaking the law. I mean, these guys were so committed to living according to the law of God. The scribes would have been those that would sit in the synagogue and they would copy text. They would literally write it down. They would make sure they were getting it word perfect. And then they would deliver that text to the other synagogues in the region. And yet the Bible says that these two groups are murmuring outside, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And Jesus takes offense to their murmuring. And the Bible says He speaks this parable unto them. Now, a parable was a popular form of, of storytelling and homily in Jesus' day. Uh, what we mentioned last night, what a parable is. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It brings a heavenly perspective to an earthly situation. It helps us think about our world differently, right? Through a, a, a heavenly perspective. And Jesus is going to teach this parable unto them at dinner that night. And the Bible says Jesus loved parables. I mean, he, he just he spoke them all the time. In fact, if you've got one of those Bibles that uh, highlight the words of Jesus in red, the truth is probably about 85% of that are parables. In Matthew chapter 13, it tells us that he spoke, not in, he, he, he spoke nothing but parables unto them. In other words, there was a whole stretch of Jesus' ministry where all he spoke to his disciples were parables. All he spoke to the multitudes were in parables. He loved speaking parables. But at dinner that night, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus lays out one of his greatest hits. I mean, seriously, like if we were compiling a record, you know, tonight of all the, all the parables, the greatest hits, right? Track number one, Luke 15. Like this parable has stood the test of time as just one of those stories that Jesus tells that leaves a lasting impression of us. As around dinner that night, he talks about lost sheep, lost coins, and lost sons. And he talks about the heartbreak of losing and the joy of finding. My son Mason, he is uh, quite the, um, quite the uh, uh, extrovert, right? He's uh, very outgoing. He likes to talk to everybody. And, um, and so uh, last year we were uh, in the middle of the pandemic and uh, I was uh, helping out our home church because uh, all my meetings had kind of been uh, sidelined for, for a while. And so we were helping out our home church, and our home church is very analog, right? They're not digital at all. And so uh, we had to get all of our services online because we weren't uh, really meeting in our church. There's a, a COVID outbreak and things like that. And so uh, we had to get all of our stuff online. And so, uh, you know, my, my brother, he's my pastor. He's 15 years older than me. He says, uh, Eric, 
we got to get all this online and we have zero budget to buy anything new. So how are we going to do this? You know, I was like, well, I guess I can record you on my phone, you know, and uh, we can try to get it up. And so, uh, but you know, when you do that, it, it takes a while and uh, the connection's not always great. And so what we had decided to do without anybody really knowing is we would pre-record all of our services. And so we would record them early on Wednesday and then I would, I would push it out live on Wednesday night from my house where the Wi-Fi was a little bit stronger than that at the church. And so uh, then we do the same thing. We would record Sunday mornings on Saturday night and we'd meet on the church on Sunday afternoon and record Sunday evenings and we'd push them out on Sunday and I would do that from my house. And so it was a Wednesday. I was at the church and I remember waiting for my brother to, you know, give me the okay. I'm ready to go record. And he had just taken him a little bit longer, you know, to, to get ready. And so uh, that night he's, he, uh, he said, all right, I'm ready now. And so we went down, we recorded and it was a little bit longer of a message. And I just remember looking at my watch like, this is going to be a tight window. If I, I mean, it's, I, I will be surprised if our service goes live on time tonight, you know. And so, man, I mean, I, I get in the car afterwards. I'm running home. I'm trying to make sure it's uploading onto the right server that I need it to be on. And uh, get, 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 get the device already. And I come in, my wife's already got dinner made. I said, I'm gonna have to eat after. And I go right upstairs and sit down and I get it all going and I push live, you know, and it goes through right on time. And I think, great. Okay. And now I'm sitting there and I got to watch. I got to listen to make sure it all goes through perfectly fine, you know? And by the time the service was over, I was ready to just be done with the day. You know, I was ready to just go hang out with my family, just go relax, you know? And so I remember ripping off those headphones. I went downstairs and I gave my wife a big hug. I hadn't seen all day, you know, picked up Logan who's sitting there playing after dinner and I give him a hug. Hey, good to see you. And then I look for Mason, you know, hey, Mason, Mason, where are you at? And he wasn't in the kitchen. And I said, hey, Alexa, where's Mason? She said, I think he's upstairs in his room playing. And I thought, oh, that's weird. I didn't see him upstairs. I was just up there, you know. And so I put Logan down and I, I went upstairs and I went into his room. I said, Mason, dad's home. Uh, dad, dad, dad's done with work now. Uh, where, where are you at, buddy? And I, I'm looking in the closet. He's not there. And I, at this point, I'm convinced he's playing some sort of game with me. You know, I was like, okay, he ran into, he heard me coming upstairs. He ran to my room. He's hiding in my room now. And so I'm going to my room I'm like, all right, where are you at, buddy? You know, and I'm looking under the bed. No, he's not there. And I'm looking behind the curtain. No, he's not there. And I'm looking in the closet. No, he's not there. I'm pulling open the, the dresser drawers. You know, I'm looking under places he would never fit in. You know, like, are you under the chair? No. Okay. All right. Where is he? You know? And I go back downstairs and I say, uh, are you sure he's upstairs? She said, well, I thought so. I said, I don't think he's upstairs. She says, well, maybe he's in the living room. So we go in the living room. We're kind of doing the same thing. Now we know, oh, he's hiding, you know. And so we're like, Mason, come on, man. Where, where are you at? Where, where are you at, buddy? And we're, we're looking in drawers. We're looking under, you know, behind things. He's, he's not there. Now he had just turned four. And for four, when he turned four, he got this bike and uh, had training wheels and he loved to ride that thing around. You know, when you turn four, you're like an adult now, you know? And so he, he, he thought he could go outside and ride his bike around. So I was like, well, maybe he went outside, he's riding his bike. And so I opened the front door and his bike's right there. He's, no, he's not riding his bike. And so I close the door and I, I look in the backyard. Maybe he's playing with some toys in the backyard. No, he's... He's not. He's not in the backyard either. And so I close the back door and I, I come back in the living room and my wife, she goes upstairs. And I think, gosh, he's not upstairs. And so I'm like looking for him, you know. And now I'm starting to get concerned because when my wife came back down the stairs, her face was white. And I mean, I, I'm like, she does not know where this kid is at. And I'm like, where is he? She's like, I don't know. Well, we're like, well, 
you know, he's friends with the neighbors. Maybe he went and he's just talking to the neighbors, you know. Like, I mean, he typically will do that. He doesn't know strangers, you know. I mean, partially that's my fault. I bring him to a bunch of churches and say, go meet the strangers, you know. And so, you know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, maybe he's just around talking to the neighbors, you know. And I was like, maybe he didn't go on a bike ride. Maybe he went on a walk, you know. I don't know. And so we, we live in a little condo complex, you know. And so we are, I open the door. We're running out. Well, it's getting dark. It's, 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 the, the sun is setting. And uh, I'm thinking, what are we going to do? Like, I think our kid is lost here. You know, like, I, I don't know. Like, all I'm thinking about are all the, the missing children and the Walmart, you know, little, the Walmart section. And, you know, never even think about those. But when it's your child, you pay attention a little bit more, you know. I'm like, I don't even know who to call. Do I call 911? Do I call the police station? Like, what do I do? He's only been missing for like 10 minutes, you know. Like, I mean, but, but you know, my wife was in charge. So, you know, he could be missing for a lot longer. And she just didn't know, you know. I'm like, and I'm like, we are running around everywhere going, Mason, Mason, is Mason around here? You, you know the little kid that talks to you all the time? Is he, have you seen him? No. No, we haven't seen him. You know, and, I mean, we're going everywhere. I'm going out to the street. I'm looking across the, the, uh, our condo place to another condo place. And I'm thinking, there's no way he would have gone over there. He never, he, he would never even think that. And I remember going back in the house. It's getting, it's complete. I mean, it's getting really dark outside. We go back in the house. I collapse on the chair. I don't know how to describe it, but just panic. I was frozen in my place. And I'm thinking, all of, all of those people were right. I am a terrible father. You know, like, <laughs> what people have thought for years is now confirmed. Like, if it wasn't already, I am the worst dad of the year. You know, like, I have lost my child, you know. And my wife's looking at me, and I'm looking at her, and I'm like, we're both looking at each other like, yeah, we're bad parents. We have, we've lost, and where's our other kid, by the way? Oh, he's right here. Okay, good. All right, we got him still. Hey, at least we got him, you know. And, I mean, we're looking around like, what do we do, you know? And I'm sitting there, and my wife's sitting there, and I, and my wife looks over, and in the corner of our living room, there is, uh, the, one of those Fisher Price picnic tables. You know, my mother-in-law had got it for us, and for the kids to kind of eat at and play outside in, and it had been brought inside, and there was a blanket over it, you know. And, you know, I didn't really think anything about it. We typically had a basket there with blankets in it, and so I kind of maybe even thought it was that. I don't really even know why we didn't check it earlier. But my wife is sitting there. She's looking at that, and she just gets up, and she goes over, and she picks up the corner of that blanket, and she lifts it up, and she looks over at me and says, He's under the table. <laughs> and I thought, no way he's under the table. And I said, Mason, we are not playing around. And I went over there and I picked up that table. I threw it off of him. And Mason is under that table, sound asleep. Sound asleep. I mean, I fell down on top of him. I'm hugging him. My wife falls down on top of us both, you know. Look, Logan at that time, I don't think he's joining the party, but he was, he was on his way, you know. I mean, we're hugging him. I pick him up. I'm kissing him all the way up the stairs, you know. I put him back into his bed. Mason never woke up. You know, I put him in his bed. I think I maybe even laid down by him and fell asleep with him. I mean, in that moment, I had experienced the heartbreak of loss and then the sweet relief and joy of finding. And that's what this parable is all about. The reason why it has so been so memorable is because it plays with our heart. It plays with our emotions. Like, yes, the, there is great heartbreak in losing, but there is sweet joy and relief in finding. But this parable is not just a parable about lost coins and lost sheep and lost sons. No, this is a parable about shepherds and women 
and fathers who are eagerly and excitingly searching for lost sheep, lost coins, and lost kids. Listen, I know you're probably confused because I keep saying parable, and you're like, well, no, this is, these are three different parables. Actually, that's incorrect. If you look back at verse number three in Luke chapter 15, it says, Jesus spake this parable unto them, saying. In other words, yes, there are three stories here, but they are telling one parable. And that's going to be important because of the point of the parable, right? If we're going to understand what this, uh, what this parable is going to teach us about how we think about our world from a heavenly perspective, we've got to read the parable correctly. And when you divide them into three different parables, you miss something very important, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, which is like the Jewish hymn book, this is the songs that they would sing. It's filled with imagery and poetic language about their God, right? Uh, God takes on the form of a bunch of different uh, uh, allegorical things, right? Like the, the Lord is a strong tower. The Lord is our shield, right? All, all the psalmists would, would paint God as like the rock or uh, paint God as the, the, the pillar of smoke, right? They, they would paint him as all these different things. Well, in the book of Psalms, the Lord only takes on a personal form three different times. He only takes on the form of a person three different times. In Psalms 23, he takes on the form of a shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. So the Lord takes on the form of a shepherd in Psalms 23. In Psalms 131, the Bible describes the Lord as a woman who nurses her child to comfort. In other words, when the comfort, uh, when, when the child is in panic and he is restless, a mother would care for that child and nurse him to comfort, to ease his panic. So the Lord takes on the form of a woman and the Lord takes on the form of a shepherd. And then in Psalms 103, verse number 13, the Bible says, as a father hath compassion on his children, so doth the Lord have compassion on all those who fear him. So the Bible says, hey, the, the Lord, he takes on the form of this father. He takes on the form of a mother or a woman. And he takes on the form of a shepherd. And those are the same three things that Jesus is using in this parable to tell them that's who God is. He is the shepherd. He is the woman. He is the father. Now, all three of those psalms Highlight All three of those metaphors highlight and are connected to the gentleness and compassion of our God. That he is a compassionate God. That he leads us to the still waters. That he is our shepherd. He's our overseer. He is that mother that nurses us when we are scared. He is that father that has compassion on his child. It's pointing to the gentleness and compassion on, of who God is. Now, this is important because this parable is spoken at dinner. Why? Well, because the Pharisees and scribes are outside murmuring against Jesus for having compassion and for being gentle with the sinners and the publicans. And God and Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. And I want to make this clear. So do the Pharisees. The Pharisees know exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, yeah, you've got your law and you've got your rules and you've got your, 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 your perfectness. 
but you're missing the gentleness and compassion of your God. You're missing who God's heart beats for. God loves these people. See, that was Jesus's whole beef with the Pharisees and scribes to begin with. All throughout scripture, when he's bumping heads with them, it's not because they're devoted to the law. It's not because they want to follow through with the law and do it perfectly. No, that is not what Jesus is upset about. Jesus says, hey, these things that the Pharisees do, do, observe them. He says, but don't do as they do, for they bind heavy burdens upon men's necks that are grievous to be borne, and they themselves will not lift a finger to help. In other words, they have all these rules, but they don't help anybody live out those rules. They, they, they make it hard to be a follower of God. He goes on to say in that same chapter, in Matthew chapter 23, in verse number 14, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, ye hypocrites, ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You have closed the doors is what he's saying. He says you have and, and you do not suffer them that are entering in to go in. In other words, he says you're standing at the door of heaven and you're forcing people out. No, you're not allowed in. And Jesus says my problem is I'm standing at the door saying come on in. Everyone's welcome. I'm here to seek and to save that which is lost. And so this whole parable is to convince these scribes and these Pharisees, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're living out the law wrong. You're not following through with the mission of God. He is a gentle and compassionate God. Now with that in mind, can we look at the content of this parable. There's three stories. We're going to go through them, and we're going to try to go through them rather quickly, okay? So I know this is a long chapter. We're going to try to make our way through it, all right, Pastor? Here we go. Look at verse number four. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Okay, so Jesus starts this first parable by talking about a shepherd who goes out and searches for one of the sheep who have wandered away, right? Now, you're not going to believe how many commentaries I've read about Luke chapter 15, about the story of the lost sheep, and all they want to focus on is the sheep, right? Like, this is the condition of the sheep. This was the cause of the sheep's being wandered away. This is the, the bruising or the wounding of the sheep. And they just want to talk about the sheep and the sheep and the sheep and the sheep. But can we just be honest? The emphasis on Jesus' story is not the sheep. The emphasis is on the shepherd. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, Doth not leave the ninety and nine and go find the one. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders and he cometh back rejoicing. The whole story is about the shepherd. Jesus is saying, listen, if you were a shepherd and you lost one of your sheep, would you not go out and find it? And of course, the answer to everybody in the audience is, yeah, that's what a good shepherd does, right? Like a good shepherd goes out and finds the sheep that he's lost. If he doesn't go look for the sheep, he's not a good shepherd. 
So why is Jesus telling the story? Well, because in the Old Testament, the prophets called the leaders of Israel bad shepherds. It was one of the things the Lord told them to call them. In fact, would you just turn over to Ezekiel chapter number 34 with me? Ezekiel chapter number 34. Sorry to make you use your Bible tonight in church, but just turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Hold your place there in Luke 15. We will come back. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34 with me. Again, this is a, 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 a prophet here. And he is speaking to the Lord. In fact, verse number 1 of Ezekiel 34 is going to say, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, right, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and you clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. Sound like anybody else? Yeah. The same thing that the Old Testament leaders of Israel were guilty of are the same things that the New Testament Pharisees and scribes are guilty of. They are binding men. They they are treating them with cruelty and they have not sought after the sheep. And look at what happens in verse 5. It says, And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep, verse 6 says, wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Whoa. Yeah. Jesus is telling this parable, and he's saying, yeah, the same thing that happened back then is happening right now. And by the way, the same story is recorded for us in Isaiah as well. And in both Ezekiel and Isaiah that talk about the bad shepherds of Israel, eventually God gets to verse number 11, where it says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. In other words, God says in Ezekiel, one day I'm showing up to search after my sheep. And Jesus, you don't tell me he didn't claim to be God because he's standing right there and he's saying, I'm here because you didn't do your job, Pharisee. Because you're not searching after the sheep, scribe. Because, you're, because you've lost a whole group of, uh, of your brethren. You've lost a whole group of people and you're not searching after them. Now man, the, 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 the sinners and the publicans, they're sitting there like, wow, what a great story. Jesus is this masterful storyteller. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they're growing awfully uncomfortable. Oh man, this guy's talking about us. This, this guy's... This guy, this, guy, this guy's claiming to be God himself who has showed up to seek after the sheep that we have forced away. But Jesus isn't done yet. Look again at verse in, in Luke chapter 15. Look at verse number 10. I'm sorry, look at verse number 8. He says, Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver... If she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. 
And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So, so Jesus' first story is essentially a question saying, how many of you, being a shepherd, if you lose one of your sheep, would not go out and find it? And when you find it, you'd rejoice. Well, yeah, we would all do that, Jesus. And then the second story, I mean, if you read it the same way, would be uh, how many of you, if you're a lady, getting out of your car and your purse spills some loose change, would not tear the car apart searching for those few quarters that you've lost? And we're like, no, I wouldn't do that. 75 cents is no big deal, right? Well, in order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we've got to understand what Jesus is talking about, right? So these 10 coins that are signified of a woman here, being a woman's, is most likely this piece of jewelry that this lady would wear over her headdress. And it's signified in the, uh, in the, uh, in the near, in the, in the ancient Near East, it signified their, um, their marriage. It was like their version of a wedding ring, right? And so, uh, in fact, uh, th- these things were so precious and so rare to these people, it would have been given by, by the, by the uh, father of the groom to the mother of the bride, and the bride then would give it to her on her wedding day, and then uh, the, the mother of the bride would give it to her on her wedding day, and that, that piece, even if this woman was in a great debt, they could not take those coins from the woman. It, it, it was signet. It was hers. It can ne- she can never be parted from it. Now, Warren Wearsby is going to tell us that if a woman loses one of those coins, um, she's in big trouble. If she loses one of those coins, it was grounds for divorce. Now, that's, that's crazy, right? Like, that's nuts. Because, like, I'm not wearing a wedding ring tonight. My wedding ring is in the bottom of a lake in Wisconsin. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that, truthfully. I mean, we were out jet skiing. We were having a good time. And uh, uh, we were wakeboarding, actually. And uh, my, 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 I was getting callous. I was getting bruised, you know. My little, my little not man hands were getting uh, weak, you know. And so I went to take my ring off, and it just, it just kind of popped. And I thought about going after it, but it, it was kind of cold in that water. And so, you know, it's still there to this day, you know. And so I don't have... A ring on. That's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of, it's kind of a shame. But my wife never once was like, well, you don't, if you don't get that ring, we're done. Like that, that wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't how it went down. I mean, you know, at least that's what she told me to say. So anyway, so, so, uh, you know, but in this, in this day, if this lady loses that, if this lady loses one of those coins, it is, it is serious. It is not only deeply embarrassing, but it is for the sake of her marriage. She's got to find that coin. Now, why was this grass for divorce? Well, because you weren't really even allowed to remove those coins unless you were in the presence of your own husband. So if you were to remove those coins and lose one of them, well, the man would think, well, you were in the presence of somebody else. You, you were in the presence of a different man. And so you were hide your symbolism of marriage. And so it, it, it sort of kind of makes sense in their worldview. But the whole point of it is that she's got to find this coin, right? So when you understand what the coins meant to the lady, it makes sense then that she is lighting the candle. It makes sense then that she is sweeping the broken floor and she is looking everywhere for that coin. Why? Because she's got to find the coin. And it also makes sense that when she finds the coin, there's rejoicing. There is this party that takes place, right? Because, man, it's not I found 75 cents. Let's go waste a bunch of money to have this party. No, it's I found this coin and my marriage is saved. I have saved my family here. And again, it's a beautiful story. 
But to the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus is making a very pointed point. He is saying, listen, you have lost something that is valuable to God. You have lost something that is part of the mark that makes you mine. And you're not concerned to look for it. You're not the ones out there looking in the highways and the hedges for the sinners, bringing them in. No. In fact, you have forced them out. You, you, you have said we don't need them and they need to be purged from the earth. I mean, he says, listen, you've got to go search for the coin. You've got to search for the coin. And he says, I've come and I found the coin and we're rejoicing. Why aren't you rejoicing? But he's not done yet. He says in the next verse, and there was a man, a certain man who had two sons. Now this last story has certainly been highlighted as kind of the the greatest of the three. And in fact, Charles Dickens says this is the greatest short story ever told. And um, it's interesting to me that it has found so much love. And obviously we identify some with this story. Look at verse number 11 here. It says, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, I would like to keep reading, but we really have to stop and we have to catch some cultural cues, right? Because without understanding the culture that Jesus is speaking to, we will get our perspective of the story. And while that can certainly do good for us, it is not going to do the best thing for us, right? So we've got to understand the, the culture that Jesus is speaking to, right? The culture that Jesus is speaking to is a patriarchal worldview, meaning that the guy, the, 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 the dad, the, the father, the, the, the beginning, right? He is the head. He is in charge. He is the guy. He is the patriarch. And his wife would have been the matriarch. And they, they were the head. Everything fell under them. And in those days, you didn't leave home. If you were to get married, you just became an extension of their family. And you'd all live in this one area called the Batav. And in the Batav, you'd all have different responsibilities. You'd have different work that you'd do. And it was all for the glory and for the name of the patriarch. It was all under his honor, his name, right? When the patriarch passed away, his inheritance, but also his responsibility, his batav, would be divided amongst his children, his offspring, and his offspring boys, right? And so in the case of this story, there's two sons, right? So when this guy dies, his entire livelihood is going to be divided between these two sons. But the older son, known as the Bakor, is going to get a double portion. So the oldest son gets two-thirds, and the younger son gets the rest, right? And if he had three sons, then he would split his living into four parts. The older one would get two, and then the other two would get equal shares. But the oldest would always get a double portion, right? And so when, when, when this younger son comes to the father in Jesus' story and says, give me the portion of goods that befalleth me. Notice, he didn't say, give me the responsibility. He didn't say, give me the inheritance. He said, just give me the good stuff. I just want the money. I just want what's going to come to me when you die. Is essentially his way of saying, I wish you were dead. I, I, I wish you were dead. This is extreme dishonor. It's grounds for disownment. And actually, it's actually grounds for death. Like this kid, this kid's in big trouble if he does this, right? And it makes sense then why Jesus doesn't tell this third story in the form of a question like he did the first two stories, right? 
because it just doesn't really work well, right? He's like, which of you being a shepherd loses a sheep, wouldn't go out and find the sheep? Oh yeah, we'd all would do that. And which of you being a woman loses her wedding ring, wouldn't go look for it? Oh yeah, we all would. And which of you having a son wished to be dead, wouldn't give him his inheritance? No, none of us would do that, Jesus. You're crazy. No, that kid doesn't get nothing from me. See, like, as part of this batav, you were allowed to leave and do your own thing, but you didn't take any of the inheritance. You didn't ask for anything on your way out. If you were leaving the family, that's fine, but you don't get anything from us. And so for this guy to have the arrogance to say, hey, I'm leaving, and I just want what's going to come to me when you're dead, is a little bit arrogant and a little bit shows that this kid doesn't really understand how his world works. And yet it's just amazing to me that Jesus just casually says at the end of verse, thir- at the end of verse 12, and he divided unto them his living. And I mean, the audience there goes, well, that guy's, that guy's foolish. That, that guy is, is silly. Why would, this, why would this guy do that? That's not how it works. Why would you give him the money? Why would you give them the good stuff? And look what happens in the next verse. It says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Okay, and what I love about the story and why it's so beautiful is that Jesus is now going to paint this younger son in a way that makes every single one of us despise him, right? Like, he's going to make sure we get to the story thinking, This guy, this kid is a lost cause, right? Let's see how well you've been listening this week. On Sunday morning, I talked about a land that Jesus was selling to, right? He's going over there. And I said that they don't talk about that land in the, in the worldview that Jesus is in. They don't talk about it. They don't go over there. And they, they would refer to it as a far distant country, right? Do you remember what the land was? The land of the Oh, we got to start over next Sunday, Pastor. They weren't the land of the Decapolis, right? It's full of pagan people. It's Gentile nation. It is, it is pagan altars. In fact, from the side of the sea that Jesus is standing on, you can see the smoke going up, offering sacrifices to their pagan gods. And Jesus is pointing across the sea as he tells the story, saying, and he gathered up the stuff, and he headed to a far distant country, and he wasted his substance on riotous living. And everyone in the audience goes, Of course that's what that kid did. Of course that's what the rebellious kid did. Of course he would go to the Decapolis. Of course he'd waste his substance with riotous living because that's all that's over there to spend your money on. And the Bible says in the next verse that when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And everybody goes, good for him. He got what he deserved. Yeah, he did waste it all. And now he's got nothing because he didn't learn how to save and he ignored the advice of his father. And man, now he's in want and now he's got to stay over there. And now he is disowned. He's got no family and now he is in want. And the next verse says that he went and he joined himself to the citizen of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Well, if you know your Jewish history, you know that Jews are kosher in what they eat. And one of the things that they stay away from is bacon. They don't like pig. You can't eat 
pig. And so they, they, they view the pig as a filthy animal. And what a perfect place for the filthy, unclean kid to end up in the pig pen with the filthy animals. Because that's where filthy pigs go. They go with other filthy pigs. That, that's the worldview. And that's what Jesus is speaking to them. And they're sitting there going, yeah, I'm glad that that's where that kid is at. I mean, there's justice in the world after all. That kid got exactly what he deserved. He's now a slave in a pagan land, and he's feeding the pig swine. Yes. In verse 16, Jesus humanizes him, and he says, and he would fain to have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto them. In other words, uh, this, this kid is in that pig pen and he is looking at the slob and the trash that the pigs are eating and he's sitting there going, I kind of want to eat that. Now he can't eat it, it's poisonous and it would likely kill him, but he is, he's lusting after it, he wants it, he's hungry, he's in need of food. In other words, what Jesus is paying is this kid is starving and he's going to die. He's on his last end. And I, 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 I seriously think the sinners, the publicans, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're all sitting there and they're thinking, good, good. That, 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 that's, what, that's what should happen to him. But then he has this come to Jesus moment, as we've called it. And I don't necessarily know if it's a come to Jesus moment as much as it is just a come to his senses moment, right? Like, like in the next verse, and he's looking at the trash that they're eating and he's going, I shouldn't want to eat that. Like something's wrong here. This is not, this is not how my life should have played out. And he says in the next verse, in verse number 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? In other words, he says, I am a slave over here in this foreign country and how many slaves did my father own that were eating glorious food, that they had plenty of food to eat. They were never in hunger. They were never in want. And so look what he says. He says, um, I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. In other words, what he says is, uh, man, I'm going to go back. I'm going to travel back to my homeland. I'm going to go back into the Batav, and I'm going to say, hey, I know I blew the whole son thing. I'm not worthy to be your son. I don't really care to be your son. I just want to go eat some good food, so let me just be one of your servants. I'll go be a servant, and and that's fine. I'll go be a slave. I'll go work for you, but at least I'll have some food to eat. So this is a logistical move that this kid is making, right? Like, I don't want to be a slave here. I'd much rather be a slave over here. And so the next verse says that, I, that in verse number 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. Okay, so he's, he's like, okay, I'm going to go back. So he gets up and he starts heading back. Now, again, something that we miss is that the whole audience there that day is sitting there going, that's not how this works. You don't get to come back. Once you leave, you're gone, right? Especially you leave the way this kid leaves, you're lucky to be alive. You don't ever think about coming back. In fact, I have read that there were about 17 different types of ceremonies that they would have done to like signify to the entire village and community that that kid was dead. He was, he was dead. 
They would have a funeral for him. They would have a grave for him. They would mourn him every year on the anniversary of his death when he left. I mean, they wanted everyone to know that kid, he's dead. He is gone. He is dead to me and he, is, he might as well just be dead. That kid doesn't get to come back. In fact, one commentator says that if he does ever step back in the batav, he is stoned immediately. Whoa. So the people there, this kid doesn't know how life works, right? This kid's coming back to meet his father. His father's not coming out to meet him. His father's staying inside. His father's not coming out. There's no forgiveness to be offered to this kid. There's no, yeah, come be my slave. No, that's not how it works, buddy. You have been cut off. And yet, how beautiful that the Bible says he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. What does that imply? It implies he was looking for him. See, this is not a story about a father who loses his son and has no clue where he's at, and all these years later, his son comes back, and he's just so glad to see him. No, no, no. This is a father who loses his son, and he knows exactly where he's at. He knows exactly the kind of life he's been wrapped up in. He knows exactly what kind of filth he is covered in, and yet every morning, he still gets up, and he plants himself on the front porch, and with his eyes glued to the horizon, he looks over at that city, and he knows all the wickedness, he knows all the slump. He knows all of the crimes. And yet he's looking for his son. And on that day, when he saw him a great way off, before he even knew why his son was coming home, he didn't know if he was repentant. He didn't know if he was sorry for what he said. He didn't know any of that. When he's a great way off, the Bible says he was moved with compassion. And he ran. Now that might not seem very significant to you, but in this worldview, it is extremely significant. Because the patriarch didn't run. The patriarch gave orders. He didn't go do orders. The patriarch, it was dishonorable for an older guy to run. You want to know why? Why? Watch me run. It's not very pretty, right? Like, you just didn't do it, right? And so when this kid, when this, when this guy sees his son coming home, he doesn't care about his culture. He doesn't care what his worldview is. In fact, one person I've read said he's running out to his son so that the, so that the village doesn't go stone him. I mean, he is hiking up the skirt. He is running. He is getting to his son. And look at what happens. He, he, he gets to his son. He ran and he fell upon his neck and he kissed him. The kiss is a sign of reinstatement. Everywhere in Scripture, you see someone kissing someone else. It is a sign of reinstatement or welcoming back into the family. And the son said unto him, he starts rehearsing his script, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And he gets cut off. In the Greek, it's just, it's almost like the words run into each other. There, there's no end to the sentence. It's just immediately the father said unto him, said unto his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet and bring forth the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. 
And they began to make merry. I mean, this is awesome. The father runs out. He jumps on top of his son. He's covered in pig pen. He's covered in filth. And yet he's kissing his neck. He's kissing his face. And the son says, hey, dad, I know I'm not worthy to be your son. I've sinned against you. And he says, well, forget that. I don't know where you learned that. I know that's what the culture tells you. I know that's what the world tells you. But you are my son. So servants, go get the best robe. Well, whose robe was that? The robe of the father. Go get the ring and put it on his hand. Well, what was that? It was the family signet. It, it was the family symbol that you're a part of this. And he says, put the shoes on his feet. Well, shoes were reserved for sons, not slaves. And he says, and kill the fatted calf. You know how many people can eat a fatted calf? About three to four hundred people. I mean, this is a party they're having tonight. They are inviting everybody in that village who mourned this kid's death, who celebrated this kid's death, who who thought that he was dead forever, and they're going and knocking on doors and saying, hey, we're partying tonight. You know why? Because my son that was dead, he's alive. He's back, and it's worth celebrating. And what a beautiful end of the story, right? It ends the same way that the other stories ended. There is losing There is finding, there is rejoicing, right? The sheep is lost, it's found rejoicing. The coin is lost, it's found rejoicing. The the son is lost, he's found, there's rejoicing. Story over, and they all lived happily ever after. Nope, story's not done. Jesus says in the next verse, now his elder son, in other words, that's, that's Jesus' way of saying, meanwhile, while all that is going on over here, the elder son, and, and he draws us back to the first verse of the story. Now a certain man had two sons. Oh, that's right. There's an elder son in all this. Yeah, yeah, let's check in on the elder brother. What's he up to? Now his elder son was in the field. And he came and drew nigh to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things mean. And he said to him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. So so the brother misses the, 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 the initial receiving of the son. And so he's coming home. He sees music. He sees a party going on. And so he calls out one of the servants. He says, hey, what's going on here? He says, well, well your brother's home. Hey, hey, your dad's received him saving himself. So he's killed the fatted calf. And, and we're partying. Come on, let's go. And the Bible says, and he was angry. And he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. This is important. Um, We like to focus a lot about the prodigal son. We don't like to focus a lot about the elder son. And this is important to understand here. That just as the father ran out the front door to embrace and receive the younger son, he runs out the back door with the same attitude to receive and welcome the older son, right? This word that he goes out and he entreats him, it's the Greek word paraclete. 
It's translated about 17 different, it's, it's translated in about 17 different words in your English Bible. Sometimes it's the word entreat or beseech. Sometimes it's the word comfort. Sometimes it's the word to beg. It is this idea that, and, and the Father's doing all of that here. He is coming out. He's coming alongside of. That's what the actual word means. And he's coming to comfort him. He's coming to encourage him. He's coming to beseech him to, of why he needs to come inside and why he needs to be a part of this and why this is important here. And I just love what happens. Actually, I don't like what happens at all. It says, and he answering. In other words, he's answering his father's pleas and comfort and encouragement to come on and party. And he answers it, said unto his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with the harlots, and as thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. In other words, this kid sits there and he goes, I have been working my tail off for you all these years. I've been sweating in the field. I've been doing hard work. I've never gone back on your word once. I've never disobeyed one thing you've said. I've been working and working and working, and you've never even offered to give me a little goat to eat with my friends. You know how many people can eat off a young kid, a young goat? About 25 to 35 people. Significantly less than the fatted calf. I mean, this, this older son, he's got a wild imagination, huh? Like, I want this party and I only want 35 people there. Like, I, I want this big party and I only want it for me and my friends. I've been working my butt off for it and you've never given me anything. And yet, the moment, the moment that your son, notice he doesn't say my brother, he says your son, you've received him back, I ain't received him back, the moment he comes back into town, and you know, you know he spent his living on the harlots, and you know he's wasted the substance that you've given him, you know what he's been doing, Dad, and he comes back, and you kill for him the fat of cap, yeah, let's have this big old party, everyone's invited. No, I'm not coming in for that party. I don't want to be a part of that party. That's not my party. I want my little goat with my group of friends, just me. And the dad looks at the son. And in some words that convict me to this day, he says, son, thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. In other words, he looks at this kid and he says, "Uh, you know how this works, right? He took his portion. The rest of it's yours. You're my son. You don't have to work for the kid. You want to have a party with your friends? Go get the kid. It's yours. You can do that. You you want your party? Go for it. You are ever with me. You're my son. And so everything that I've got is yours. I'm sorry you felt like you had to work for it. You didn't. I'm sorry you felt like you had to earn my approval of your party. You don't. You're my son, and it's yours. You want the kid? Go get it. You want to have your party with your little friends? Go get it. But notice what he says. He says, it was meat. In other words, it was necessary. It was imperative that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, 
You can have your party. But this night, this party, this is important because this family does things differently. This family welcomes people home. This family rejoices in resurrections. This family rejoices in the sheep being found and the coins being found and the lost being found. We are going to go party, son. We're going to go party. Um, Why is Jesus in the story this way? I mean, kind of a little bit of a downer, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're like, you're ending it with the, the angry, absent elder brother. Why? Why not end with the party? Why not end with the celebration? Why are you ending with the, eh? Can we just forget about that part? Like, I'd much rather end with the party. They all lived happily ever after. Why'd you tell us that part about the elder son? Well, remember, who is this story for? Is Jesus telling this story for the publicans and sinners? Well, I guess to some degree. I mean, he's saying it in front of them. But is he trying, who is he trying to communicate to? Why did he, why did he start telling the story? Well, it was because the Pharisees and the scribes are murmuring outside. In other words, he's telling the story to the elder brothers, right? He's telling the story to the people who know better, who have stayed home, who have followed the law. Now, here's the question. Have we heard this story before? Not this story. I know we've heard this story. Have the the Pharisees and scribes, have they heard this story before? Right? Have they heard it before? Well, I don't think they've heard Jesus tell it, no. But I do think they know what he's talking about. Remember, these guys have the whole Old Testament memorized, word perfectly. Um, Just like when I say, um, Luke, I am your father. You know what I'm talking about, right? You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Star Wars, you know the context of it, and you know everything. Unless you've been living under a rock for like 40 years, you know. You, you know it. it, it's there. It, it's a cultural thing that's known. And when the Pharisees and scribes hear a guy talk about a man who had two sons, and the younger son takes the inheritance early and leaves and goes out and makes a mess of his life and comes home, do you know what story this is? This is the story of Jacob and Esau and Isaac. And Jacob, as the younger brother, wastes his substance and he's coming back to make a mess. He's got a mess of his life made. And on his way back home, he has this encounter with God where he realizes, I'm not doing life right. I need to go back. I, I, need, to, I, need, I need some restoration. And you know how the story ends, do you? Do you mind if I read you some of the closing remarks to Jacob and Esau's story? It doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyways. It's in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter number 33. And I promise you we're almost done. I know that I've gone longer tonight than I have the other nights, but we're in Genesis chapter 33. And if you want to turn that, that'd be great. If not, you can do it later. This is the story. Genesis 32 has ended. Jacob has wrestled with God. And now he's coming back home. And who comes out to meet him? It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came. Now who's Esau? Oh, he's the elder brother. Esau came. And with him 400 men. 
And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost and Leah and her children after and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times till he came near unto his brother. Verse four. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That is word for word how Jesus describes the father going out and greeting the lost son. It's word for word. Like, sorry, Charles Dickens, Jesus plagiarized it. Like it was all plagiarized, right? This is the same story that Jesus is now telling in their day. But what's the difference in Jesus' story between Jacob, Esau, and Isaac's story? Well, in the real story, the elder brother goes out and embraces the son. The elder brother goes out and welcomes the son home. The elder brother is the one who is receiving of the younger brother. But in Jesus' story, it's the father that goes out. And I tell you, that's why Jesus had to circle back around to the elder brother. Because the Pharisees and scribes know who they are in the story. And they're sitting there going, yeah, and where's the elder brother at? Where's Esau at? Oh, Esau's in the field. Esau's outside the dinner party murmuring that Jesus has received sinners and publicans safe and sound. And Jesus is saying, I'm sitting here having dinner because you won't sit and have dinner. And I love the way that the story ends. The elder brother looks at his dad. He says, oh, dad. I blew it. You're right, Dad. You're such a good father. And he falls into his chest. They embrace and they come into, come into the, the house and they party and the music's going and it's wonderful. No, it's not how it ends. In fact, Jesus just drops like a cliffhanger on us. He says, it was meet that we should go and make merry for this. Your son was dead. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Boom. Movie over. Black screen. Credits roll. And it's not a Marvel movie. There's no end scene after the credits. It's just over. There's no sequel. It's just over. The end. But what happened? Did the elder brother come in and party? Was the younger son really repentant? Like, like, did he change? Like, did he really mean it? Or, or like a few weeks later, was he back out? Like, like, did they ever recognize their father's love? What, how does the story end? We don't know. Jesus lets it linger. And the truth is, tonight, we get to decide how it ends. We get to decide whether we're going to be like the Father or not. Like, I believe Jesus closes his, he, he gives his last word. It's meet that we party because the lost are found. And he turns around in one of those empty chairs and he just kind of gestures, come on in. There's a seat at the table. We can forget it ever happened, Pharisees. Just come celebrate 
what God is doing. Come be a part of the redemptive work of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus, that sinners can be redeemed and that religiosity can be redeemed. Let's party. Come sit at table. I gotta tell you, this story hits you differently when you stop viewing yourself as the prodigal and start viewing yourself as the elder brother. Like, we love to play the role of the guy that's messed it up and then God redeems. But we don't like to play the role of the elder brother who thinks he's all got it figured out. We don't, we don't like to be the Pharisee. And the truth is, you know why you don't like to be the Pharisee? Because the truth is, we are the Pharisee. We are the Pharisee. We're the ones that think we got it all figured out and we just want a little goat for our little party and our little circle of friends and we don't want anybody that's different than us. And No, just, just us and no more! I tell you, if revival's ever going to happen, we've got to throw away the goat and go grab the fatted calf. We've got to start opening up our mind and opening up God's, God's mind and say, God, you want the whole world to be redeemed. Lord, would you help me want the whole world to be redeemed? Would you help me be the one who's planted on the front porch looking for the lost on their way home? Would you help me be the one who'd light a candle and sweep the house and search tirelessly for the lost one? Would you help me be the good shepherd that goes out and risks his life to grab that sheep and carry him home? Lord, I want to celebrate like you celebrate. I want to celebrate when heaven celebrates, not when I want to celebrate. Listen, the, the truth is both of the children were lost. The young son was lost. The elder son was just as lost. They were both separated from the father and they both didn't understand who the father was and how the father worked. The story is not about, if you're saved tonight, the story is not about are you going to be the prodigal or are you going to be the, the elder brother? No. The story is not an invitation to not be the prodigal and not be the elder brother. Story is an invitation to walk the path of the Father. This is not the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of the forgiving Father. Are you going to be like Him or not? Are you going to choose to open your hands and open your arms like Jesus or cross your arms like the elder brother and cross your arms like the Pharisees? God's saying, listen, I'm celebrating. Why are you condemning what I'm doing? my arms are open. Why are your arms crossed? Hey, it's time to celebrate, church. We get to decide how the story ends. We get to decide if we're going to be a part of the Father's mission or if we're just going to keep working in the field. Oh, just me. Oh, and listen, I don't want to take for granted that there could be some prodigals in the room tonight. And perhaps you've, you've spent a lot of your life running and you've spent a lot of your life living in some pig pens. Listen, tonight, the Father's arms are open. He's looking and I'm looking and I hope this church is looking to welcome you home and put the best robe on you and put the shoes on your feet and we want to party tonight. We got leftover pizza from three nights ago that we're going to feast on tonight. 
And if you're the elder brother in this room and you think that you're right with God because of all that you do and you think that you're on your way to heaven because you've been plowing in the field and you've been working for him and working for him and working for him and at the end of your life, he's of course gonna let you in because you've never done anything wrong. I got some bad news for you. That's not how it works. You're lost in the Father's house because you don't know that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. He gives it to you as, as his son. It's not about what you do. It's about who he is, what he's done. So, so maybe you're a prodigal or maybe you're an elder brother, but you know who we really should be in the story? We should be that servant who is called out of the house and the elder brother says, well, what's going on here? Oh, your brother's home and we're partying. That's what we should be. We should be those who celebrate and rejoice in what the Father is doing, and we want to be a part of the party. Lord, I thank you for Luke chapter 15. Lord, it has changed my life. Lord, it's changed the way I view people. Lord, it's changed the way I view ministry. Lord, it's changed the way I view myself. God, there are so many times where it's been just about me and what I'm doing. And God, I'm doing your will. And God, I'm doing your work. And I hope I get my party. God, I don't want to be the elder brother. God, I don't want to be the Pharisee and the scribe who murmurs on the outside. I want to be like the Father. I want to be like Jesus. And God, we've been talking about it all week. We want to be conformed and molded into the image of your Son. We've been working on it all week. And God, sometimes it means we've got to suffer. Sometimes it means we've got to have terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And Lord, sometimes that means we've got to fail. And sometimes we've got to step out of the boat. And sometimes we've got to fall on our face and get back up and just keep trying and just keep working and just keep walking in your grace and in your mercy and in your will. And Lord, sometimes it means we're going to have to forgive even when it hurts. Sometimes it means we're going to have to give grace instead of find fault. But Lord, most importantly, it means we're going to have to open the door. And we're going to have to search. We're going to have to seek. And Lord, we're going to have to find. And Lord, we're going to have to rejoice. Lord, would you help us walk the way of the Father tonight? May it not be the walk of ourselves. May we walk the path of the Father. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'll ask the piano to begin playing. And if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you tonight, man, I ask you, would you come to this altar? There's nothing special about it. It's just some wood covered in carpet. But I think this altar can be a place where alteration takes place. It's a place where you humble yourself and you say, God, I've not been living the way I'm supposed to. I, my arms have been crossed for far too long. God, I want my arms to be open tonight. I don't want to suffer men that are trying to get in to not come in. God, I want, I want to be the welcoming committee into the party. God, you're, you're, you're working. And so, God, I want to be a person who celebrates it. You can stay, come here at the altar, there in your seat. Let's just do some business with God if he's done business with us tonight.